Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. One of the things that baffles me is how bad we are in business at planning ahead for ebbs and flows. Right now, it kind of seems like modern business design is hustle or nothing. You've got to go, go, go or or else. And to me, it seems as though we should question this entire premise. If you can't take one to three months away from your business, then perhaps we are actually building risky and fragile businesses. So when I set out to build Startup Pregnant and have kids along the way, which building a business and having children are both pretty unpredictable endeavors and they come with a lot of ebbs and flows, I asked myself, how might I design this better? What systems and tools could I use to set up a better workflow while building both my family and my business? Now, I'm not going to say that it's easy and I have a magical solution, but I do think that there is some element of doing less and reducing the overwhelm and not trying to overdo it that is something we are all hard-pressed to learn how to do better. So that's the topic of today's episode. I am so delighted to welcome a guest host and a dear friend of mine to have this conversation with me. Carrie Fortin is joining us for the Friendship Series. And if you are just jumping in today, we are doing a series this entire November, starting with episode number 81. So you can go back one episode to hear the first one in the series. And in that first episode, we talk about how Carrie and I met and some of her story and where she's coming from. So she has joined me in recording a series of conversations as my co-host for part of the maternity leave series I have planned. Many of you also know that I'm out on leave with my second kiddo who was due to arrive at some point in October. So this show is still running and I am most likely at this time when this episode goes live, underslept, frazzled, teary-eyed, going through some significant hormonal shifts and being inside of that newborn haze right at this moment while recovering from labor and delivery. So I'm somewhere else in space. My past self has recorded this episode for you, and I'm so grateful to Carrie for joining me in this series that we can release during my leave. Let's dig in. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Hey, hey, I made a thing and I want to tell you all about it. It's one of our new guides and it's up on our website. One of the biggest struggles in my business isn't coming up with new ideas or doing more. One of the biggest challenges is focusing, figuring out how to do less, and making sure I have clarity about doing just the right things. I wish I could say that I had it all figured out and I have a magic wand to make life easier, poof, presto, but not quite. But what I do have is a structure of questions, just three questions that I return to time and time again that helps me sort myself out whenever those piles of to-do lists are getting way too long. It's a three-step process and I walk you through how to do it and what it looks like. Three questions for clarity, simplicity, and a new superpower, which is saying no to the things that you don't actually need to do. If you want the free guide, head to startuppregnant.com slash stop. That's startuppregnant.com slash stop. 
S-T-O-P. And you can grab the guide for free. The link is also in the show notes. It's our freebie guide for figuring out what to drop, how to do less, and how to simplify your business whenever you feel the chaos descending upon you. Okay, everyone, we have such a special guest joining us today. We're going to have a conversation about how to do less in business and how to set up systems for success based on what I'm learning so far in Startup Pregnant. Carrie Fortin is joining us. She is a writer, a storyteller, and a web designer. She is also the co-founder and the author of the business and book called New Minimalism. It's an Amazon bestseller, and it focuses on how your external and your internal states align. So she's my go-to resource for beautiful design, beautiful homes, understanding the psychology behind homes. They have a decluttering design and organization business that's been really successful. And she lives in Boise, Idaho, with her husband, her daughter, and her dog, Bodie. Carrie, thank you for coming on this episode and joining me in this special series where we get to have awesome conversations. (laughs) Oh, well, twist my arm, Sarah. I mean, you know how much I love talking to you, period. And then business and baby is pretty much the (laughs) topics in my life right now anyways. So I am so glad as always that we get to talk this through together. I always joke for people listening, Carrie and I talk every week because Carrie is an amazing friend, an amazing writer. She has been an integral part of the Startup Pregnant Project. And so we have a standing weekly call. And every time we have a conversation, we end up getting into the philosophical stuff too. It's always like, Carrie, we should record this. (laughs) We should turn this, this into a podcast episode. So I'm glad we're doing this. Me too. Me too. And it is so funny because we did just have to cut our like pre-conversation short because it's like, no, we're already <laughs> diving into this. So I love it because to me, that just means one, that the conversation is natural and two, that it's really important because we can't stop ourselves from having it all the time because it is top of mind for both of us yeah. as moms and business owners. Yeah. I mean, yes, a thousand percent. Yes. So let's see how this goes. <laughs> I have like four to six episodes I know I want to record with you and We'll see. <laughs> Expanded to doing like Perfect. more. <laughs> well, good. Okay. Well, so yeah, let's jump right in. And also, thanks for letting me sit in the host seat. It's very comfy and cozy. So thank you. Like jumping right in, I want to think back to 2017. So you had just launched Startup Pregnant as the podcast, and you were looking ahead to 2018. So how are you thinking about the year ahead and planning for both business growth and family growth? This is such a good question because it's always helpful to go back and think about where you were six months ago, 12 months ago. We were nearing the end of 2017. My partner and I had had a lot of conversations about whether or not we wanted a second kid. And that's a subject for a whole different episode. Mm -hmm. But we had finally both come into alignment. And it wasn't one of us did want and one of us didn't want. It was like, when one of us wanted, the other one didn't, and the other one wanted, the other one didn't. And we had to like both be on the same page. We finally were like, yeah, we're going to start trying for a kid. We'll start in 2018. Little side story. We didn't want to start over Christmas because we didn't want to talk to our families about it. We didn't want to have to have <laughs> questions at the holidays where it was like, hey, you're trying for a second kid. We wanted to be able to say no without lying. <laughs> So we just waited till January 1st. Yeah. You're also so principled because I would have just been like, no, and been lying. So (laughs) I really honor that in you, Sarah. (laughs) I'm just not a very good liar. (laughs) Maybe it's less about integrity. (laughs) 
I have worked hard to try to do it, but my dermatologist calls me a flusher and a blusher. It's like you can see (laughs) what's on my face. I remember I was like 14. She's like, are you a flusher and a blusher? And I turned beet red. And she's like, you don't have to answer. I already know. (laughs) I'm a terrible liar. I should probably take poker classes to get better. So this was back in 2017. We actually got the worst flu I've ever had on New Year's Eve and got norovirus, which is a very contagious, very terrible flu. And we were vomiting for like three days straight. And I remember the first night, Alex and I thought we had got food poisoning. We're like, well, Leo's fine. At least he's sleeping. And I woke up the next day and he was covered in vomit and diarrhea. And I was like, I am literally the worst parent ever. Like I should not have any children. And then I kind of reconciled. I said, I couldn't have gotten off the toilet myself to help him. He was in a safe place. He had cushy padding. We all went through the terrible together. 2018 has been up from there. But (laughs) (laughs) so let me actually answer your question. When we started thinking seriously about having a kid, I thought about how disruptive the first one was. And how much I didn't enjoy pregnancy. Like pregnancy asked me to do hard things and it asked me to shift my paradigm and it challenged me and it made me grow. But I wouldn't say that I enjoyed it. And part of it was because I wasn't prepared for how exhausting it was going to be and how mentally and physically fatiguing and how culturally challenging it would be. So now that I had this knowledge of what the first one was like, A, maybe the second one won't be like this. Like Maybe I'll have a better pregnancy because they're all different. But knowing what I know, can I design the work that I want to do in a way that doesn't seem like such a conflict, such a hustle, such an exhausting thing? So I started to lay out what it was that I wanted to do in my business. And this is what we're going to get into today is like how I did this said, how can I design a business where I work first trimester? Maybe I only have 40% of my normal energy. Is there a way that I can use that strategically in my business and design for the second and the third trimester to the best of my ability to make it more modular and responsive for the kind of work that I want to do? Amazing. Okay. I love what you said in there about using like that 40% strategically, because I think my thought was always like, okay, you have the work that you do and now you just have to cut it in half. And so everything is kind of lessened. You take a step back. You're just, I hit a point in my pregnancy where it was like 3 p.m. and I was asleep. Like no matter where I was, no matter what I was doing, I was asleep. And I loved how you framed it, not as like, I'm going to do everything for, you know, one tenth as well as I used to do it, but I'm going to take what's most important and really build on that 40%. So I don't know. I would love to know more about just the mindset that helped you even recognize that like that was the big goal. Yeah. It was kind of a bigger question because I think we talk about like equal partnerships and what it looks like for men and women to balance emotional labor and household management and finances and income. And the thing is, is like in my experience, it's always been an ebb and flow. Like someone's making more money than the other one, or we're, you know, chasing a project that has great intellectual and social and cultural value, but may not be like financially compensated now, or maybe it's delayed compensation. And then there's the very real biological reality that one of our bodies was making children and the other one wasn't. And there were days I would get home and just be like, can I give you this pregnancy suit so I can go get drunk for a night? Like that would be ideal. 
like, why don't you carry this for a day? Because I'd like a break. And so I was facing this kind of four to five to six year project where my body would be the one doing all of the pregnancy and the birthing and the recovery, all of the breastfeeding. We didn't know if we would be able to, but you know, that was the hope and the goal I wanted to. And then do it again and like turn back around, have a second child and go into it. Way back when I thought three children was probably what I wanted. I'm more on the two page now. My husband is very much on the two page. We'll probably be two. I think this is my last pregnancy. Knock on wood, I guess. I don't know if that's what you do. <laughs> but, like, but when looking forward, I said, this isn't a small thing to consider. Like, this isn't something I want to stuff into the after the like little time pockets in my life. Like, this is a life design question. How do I design the next five years of my life so that, you know, from 30 to 35 and then 35 to 40, that I'm able to make the kinds of moves I want in my career and my work and my connections and my network without taking as much of a hit as is documented. I knew I was going to take some hit. I was going to take the load for birthing and making and building and feeding these humans. And so that kind of noodling over that question, what do I do with mm. it? I know what I want to do, which is a great advantage. I know that not everyone knows necessarily, or they haven't taken the time to think about it. And it's a really hard question to think about. But I've always, always wanted to be a writer. I like connecting ideas, especially ones that I feel like are at the tip of society's tongue. Like I can see things, I want to talk about them, I want to tell the stories, and I know other people haven't heard them yet. And I think it's what I do best in this world. And then second to that, building community, like really great family community, really great neighbors, really great networks, circles of women. Like this is what I'm doing with my life. And so I've been doing it for a long time under the umbrella of my own brand, sarahkpeck.com. And when I did start up pregnant, it just got more refined. It said, this is what I'm doing. I'm writing, I'm connecting ideas, and I'm connecting people around this topic. From there, it became a strategy question. Okay, what is the highest and best use of my time? What is the lowest energetic cost? What is the biggest reach? What is something that can be foundational as a platform that builds into the next thing? I'll get into all the specifics because I want to take you through the process that I use because I know we're going to talk about that today. The like nuts and bolts of it is what are the pieces that work the best? And so I laid out everything that I do. I write, I write articles, I write a blog, I have a podcast that I just launched. I have a public speaking life. I have a mastermind that I run. I have a freelance writing career. Like there's just this portfolio of projects that I do. And I started evaluating each one. And I realized like if you take public speaking versus podcasting and you compare them as two projects that you can take on, well, podcasting is something I can do from home without getting dressed. Yes, some of the <laughs> podcasts are brought to you by me and my underpants. <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe shouldn't admit that, but you know, what else? Like, I can do it from home. I can do it on my time. If I want to do solo episodes, I can do solo episodes. I don't have to travel. I don't have to put makeup on. I don't have to coordinate calendars with that many other people. It lives beyond me. Once it's published, it's live and it's out there. It can distribute at scale. Versus a speaking gig. You know, I do a number of speaking gigs every year. And I realized that it would take three or four days of travel and time and 
childcare and coordination and logistics and breast pumps and all of the things, plus an outfit I felt comfortable in and maybe all of the energy of trying to exercise so that I look good on stage, plus all of the design of the talk. And when I compared it, I said, okay, a talk maybe reaches 500 people, but if they film it and it goes live on YouTube and then like YouTube catches on, maybe I have a reach of a couple thousand people. And sure, I'd get new clients from that. But the podcast could achieve the same thing at a much lower overhead. And at a time in my life when I was having children and travels harder while you're breastfeeding, it just seemed so much more strategic as a way of designing my business. And so that's how I started to think about it. Does that make sense? Am I explaining that all? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because there were so many times where I wanted to like ask you a little question or jump in and be like, well, I heard this really brilliant woman talk about this. And I'm like, oh, it's because you interviewed them on this podcast. So I don't maybe need to quote them back, but there were a couple of people who came to mind for me right away because I love the objectivity with which you talk about designing your life, because that feels like not like this big problem that has to be solved, but sort of like a puzzle that you have the opportunity to mull over and think around. So even though, at least for me, you know, family and motherhood and business can be really emotional topics, when you frame it as a matter of design, it becomes like an intellectual curiosity, which to me is a lot more playful and easy to engage with. I think about you here, right? As like, the creator of this podcast and of this website and as the person who is holding the space for these really important conversations, you are in this unique place to be mulling this over. And so we're all really fortunate to hear you mull it over aloud. You know, and I was just thinking about Sarah Lacey and particularly in her book, The Uterus is a function and not a bug feature, sorry, a feature and not a bug. She talks about, you know, this idea of the short term and the long term. And so there's the season of pregnancy where like, yes, your productivity might go down for a couple of years. You're pregnant, you've got little kids, you're nursing, you're doing all that. And then afterwards you're like this superhuman because you worked while you weren't sleeping, while your body was growing another human, while all of these other things were being asked of you. So when some of those pull back or become less significant later on, just how much you can surge forward. And then just this idea, right? Like what Annie Dean, what they're doing at work, this idea again, of just being objective, like the system and work as we know it is not set up to support or embrace or allow like pregnant and working moms to not just to like function or make it through, but to use (laughs) their superpowers you know, to do something really meaningful. And so I love how you talked about breaking it down and finding what's the highest and best use of your time right now. Like what can be foundational? What in the short term is the most important? And then how does that fit into this long-term design as well? Like, I'd love to just jump into how you designed a startup pregnant to be a business in service to your life, as well as in service to your audience. Yeah. Yeah, I want to dig into that. Yeah. I love that you brought up Sarah Lacey and Annie Dean because I think a lot of the constraints around these cultural beliefs that like pregnancy is a setback and that Mm -hmm. you can't make it as far forward, a lot of them are wrapped up in the modern work design. The way that work looks today is broken for sure. I actually would argue that it's broken for 90% of human beings. It's just that people who have oodles of time or like they can go to the gym after work and 
drink off the stress and talk to a therapist and have weekends to recover, like they can survive it better. I wouldn't say that they're thriving. When you become a parent, you just see how much it's broken and how many things need radical reinvention in the workplace. And so the workplace comes with all these cultural myths of like, you're going to fall behind, you're a burden on businesses, you know, when we lose you for three months, it costs us a lot of money. When you start to break them down, don't actually make a ton of sense. Like, and one of my favorite things to do is to flip the question, like, how can this be an advantage? Or what is an opportunity here that a lot of people are missing? And for example, one of my favorite ones when you think about maternity leave is how can leaving for three months be beneficial for businesses? Like, what does it force you to do? And as a forcing function, it means you need to get systematic. It means you need to document. It asks you to analyze what of your work is mission critical and timely and what can be put on pause. And it also just asks whether or not you have a resilient business. Because if you cannot weather someone leaving for three months, that's a risky business. So to me, it seems like such an opportunity because I've been in enough workplaces where we've had people just leave because there's at-will employment. And people just say, oh, I'm going to leave. And they've been there for two or three years and then they quit. And then in two weeks time, you realize that you don't know how they did what they did. They didn't have a good systems manual or document the work that they did. And you have to rebuild from scratch. And then compare that to a pregnant person where you know when they're going to leave. Like they've got a due date. You're like, you're going to leave sometime (laughs) in March. It might be February. It might be April. Like we can plan ahead for this. They're going to give you lots of advance notice because we see the bump. They most likely want to come back. They want to be supported in coming back. It may not look like what it looks like now, but if you as a business can't weather small leaves of absences and tolerate fluctuations in workplace employment, like the amount that people want to work, if you cannot design a 20 or 30 hour work week and ramp people back up. How good are you really at doing business? Like, how good are you really at design? This is like one of my foundational questions for startups is if you are in the business of doing things in a new way, and you purport to be at the cutting edge of innovation, but you cannot figure out how to weather a three month leave, which is predictable, and you cannot figure out how to design a workplace that is flexible. I mean, we've got Google giving people bourbon at night. And like, if you can't do these things, which are not actually that complicated as design challenges or design problems, like, I don't know if you're that good at the rest of the stuff you say you're good at. (laughs) And I love that. And let's call, yes, businesses out on that. I mean, and I love, again, you know, when we think of it as a design problem, like, let's step back from emotion and let's just be strictly functional. I love this idea too of like, if you can't as a business weather this, if this doesn't give you an opportunity to figure out your processes and your systems and to understand what each person is doing and to streamline, like that is so powerful. But I also really wonder, what if you're a solopreneur? You know, what if it's not that somebody is going to sort of hop in for you? What does that look like? Because I know that while yeah. Startup Pregnant has this amazing community, you know, the vast bulk of this is you and it's certainly you steering the ship and driving it. So what does that look like when you're the person who's stepping back? hundred percent. And this is such an important question, especially for people listening who are in the middle of building businesses. Like I'm right there with you. I'm in the middle of building something. I'm mostly steering the ship. I have four contractors that I work with on a pretty minimal basis. So 10-ish hours a month for most of them. When I leave, I'm the voice of the podcast. I am the author of a lot of the blogs. Like, What does it mean to step away from your business and what are the costs? The nuts and bolts of this of like how I went back to figure out what I was doing, it became a really good 
chance for me to just look at and learn, okay, what is it that I'm spending my time on in the first place? Because sometimes I just show up and steamroll ahead. Like I'm in the middle (laughs) of a project and I just keep going. And I think a lot of us get to that place in business where it's like, we're going to keep doing the things that we're doing because we're in the middle of projects. And that's a fine Mm -hmm. state to be in. But so back in 2017, when I was starting to plan ahead for 2018, I had to unravel these questions a little bit and say, okay, if I'm going to make a plan, I need to know what I'm working with. And so these are the kind of three questions of the system that I use. So if you're a solopreneur and you're listening, or you have a small team, even if you're at a company and you are planning ahead to leave your job, what I did was I asked three questions. And the first one is, how many real work hours do you have in any given week? How many hours do you actually have in any given week? This might seem like a super easy question. I found it actually kind of difficult because I was like, oh, well, how many hours do I have? How much time do I have to focus on projects this year? The way I like to phrase it is how many hours do you have in your best week? Carrie, what would you say? Like, How many hours do you have on a given week to do work? It is so amazing, Sarah, because since we've talked about this before, I remember when I was first coming back with my maternity leave, I was like, I'll have 16 hours of childcare a week. So I'll be available for 16 hours of work projects. And you kind of helped me walk through like, well, let's just say you need to like shower or go to the grocery store or do whatever it is that you need to do or like all this backlog that I ended up figuring out that I'm at maybe half of like the hours that I have set aside where I have childcare where I am like planning on taking care of myself, that there's exercise that has to happen, there are family needs that have to happen, there's stuff that pops up. And then there's like just sort of base level work stuff that's not really pushing me forward into something bigger. But I'd say, you know, when I've got 24 hours of childcare, I'm actually looking at like 12, maybe 15 hours of like getting stuff done. And that includes the time when I'm looking at Huffington Post instead of writing a blog post. So, <laughs> but it's so true so because, call it 12. because say your childcare starts at 9 a.m. The podcast interview doesn't start at 9 a.m. There's like lag time. Your nanny arrives at nine. You show them like, oh, here's the milk. Here's the thing. Here's my kid. Oh, my kid's screaming because he wants the blue shoes instead of the brown shoes. Let's fix that or let's not fix that. Whatever it is, got to go. See you later. And then you have to commute wherever it is, even if it's I'm going to go down the hall. And so, then you set up the mic, you get the stuff, you open your computer, your computer says, we have to restart, you know, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I have to like do my software upgrade. There's no like nine o'clock to nine o'clock transition time. So even in the best possible world where you work down the hall, if that's your best possible world, it's definitely not mine. My brain can't handle it. So I have to commute and it takes 30 to 45 minutes to get back home. So my interviews start at 10 a.m. What I'm saying is that the number of childcare hours you have is not the number of work hours that you have. And then on top of that, if you're breastfeeding, like how does the pumping fit in? Can I interview while I'm pumping? No, I don't usually do that. So I started to map it out. And so for me, we have childcare from about 8.30 to 5.30. That's nine hours a day, Monday through Friday, 45 hours a week. But some of the questions you got to ask is how long is your commute? Is the commute ever delayed? What is your child's predictability like? Do you take a lunch break? Because feeding yourself is a thing that you have to do. And Some people work straight through lunch, but arguably that doesn't work for everyone depending on the type of work you do. Do you have client events, meetings, social events? Do you need to work out? Not everyone can work out anymore in the mornings and the evenings unless you have additional childcare or you have a partner or a spouse and then you're swapping time. 
all those other things that you used to be able to do on your work hours, you know, making doctor's appointments or, you know, getting your groceries delivered or scheduling things for other people or answering your mom's phone call or whatever it is that happens that also interrupts your workday. It's not a perfect ratio. So when I started doing this exercise, I had always assumed as a baseline that I had 40 hours of work time every week. And when I finally counted it up, I probably have 26 hours of work each week. So just like you, a little more than half of the amount of childcare is actual time that I can dedicate to client phone calls, mastermind, circle meetings, podcast interviews, research, the stuff that falls under, you might call it billable hours, but like work work. Yeah. So funny because this is one of those things where you definitely were very kind in talking me through it in my own experience. But I remember just sort of mapping out like my childcare and how I thought I was going to come back to work and really believing I was going to have that one for one, like childcare hours to work hours and totally not accounting for the fact that like I would have spent several weeks not being able to take care of anything. So like even just like maybe get a haircut or things like that didn't even enter my realm as a possibility. And so this has been one of the greatest things for me to learn from you um, is just accounting for that time period. And so I guess I'm also curious, you know, we were talking earlier about the idea of how you're choosing what you choose and like this idea of what can be foundational. I'm really curious in the startup pregnant realm, like I know you mentioned like choosing podcasts over speaking, but what are some other projects that you view as foundational or what were your other standards for just choosing what you would focus on at this time? That's a great question because I think like zooming way out, these three questions really help. But at the heart of these three questions that I want to map out for people is really this paradigm that you have far less time than you think you have. We just don't have that much time. And we operate a lot in our businesses and our choices, like we can just squeeze more in. And to me, I think we got to flip it on its head and just pick one or two things. And if your business can only do one thing, what would it be? And that's a hard question at first for people to grapple with because it's like, I want to be public speaking and I want to get my name out there and I want to get this. When you start to think in two different ways, number one, which one has the greatest ROI, return on investment? You'll see that something is a stronghold. It's the Pareto principle, the 80-20 principle, that there's something that's often far better than other things at getting the bang for the buck. Like you might have key clients that are easy and fluid and great. And then you work really, really hard to get that last client and they're a pain in the ass. And it's like, you know what? Let's focus on that one client Mm -hmm. and maybe offering them the extra couple thousand dollars of services that we were trying to close on this whole client. They're going to bleep me out later, I bet. Um, (laughs) And so you've got to pick. At first, it's a hard question, but I would argue actually that if you can't describe what your business does in a simple one or two statement, like we help people reduce the clutter in their homes by cleaning and organizing from a philosophical perspective, like Fizzle, they're an online course community. Marie Forleo teaches B-School. She has a lot of other things she does, but that's the thing she does. The one thing. Me, I host a podcast and I run a mastermind for women who are parents and entrepreneurs. Like the more clarity you can get around that, the better it is, the easier it is to steer the ship and to make choices down the line. That is first kind of the foundational principle is 
most of the time, I think we're making really messy, sloppy businesses because we're trying to do way too many things. The internet is one shiny object after the other. I think this way in terms of social media as well. People are trying to be on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and YouTube and Pinterest and Periscope. And I don't even know the names of the new ones because I've been a mom (laughs) for the last two years. So like add in 10 more social services that I don't use. And if you have paid attention to how Startup Pregnant operates, we actually have one social channel that we distribute that automatically populates to other channels, and that's Instagram. And I picked it because I like it as a visual medium, and I was getting tired of Facebook on a personal level. Then we have a Facebook community for women. And so, two, you'll see that like it's coming up again. I think my podcast distributes to YouTube, maybe, but I've never checked really on it. And that's fine. You can set up the automation if you want it. But I'm not trying to spend my days chasing after 27 different channels. So the first concept is like, you just don't have that much time. You really, really have to pick where you put your energy. The Mm -hmm. second thing is to think in terms of chess moves, which is, if you see the years laid out in front of you, think about which thing will make the next thing easier. Like what can you do first? And if you line them all up and you say, I could make a lot of money by working one-on-one with clients, or I could write a whole bunch of blog posts, or I could try to make a product. And you start to see all of these different pieces in whatever your business is. And obviously this is going to vary for different businesses. To me, the interesting question is which one makes the next one an easier sell or an easier move? And to me, the podcast, one of the things the podcast does is it creates community around ideas. So I am building a content engine. We're doing, planning on about two years of podcasting. And it creates both a network and a tribe and a community. And it's a pretty low cost experiment, a low cost test. Do people like this? Do they enjoy it? Do they want to know more about it? Built into it as a system is experimentation feedback. And if you're a business person, market research. I get to talk to people and interview them. If you think about an MBA and you're going to get an MBA, one of the things that you get out of it is all the connections. Well, I get to interview brilliant women. I'm shocked that they keep saying yes, but I get to interview my (laughs) heroes. And then I get to talk to them for an hour in a really intimate conversation about what their lives look like. And so at the end of two years of interviewing 200 people, I have 200 more people that I get to talk to. So that Mm. even if the projects make $0, and it turns out that it's a bust financially, I have 200 people to talk to about getting a job. To me, there was like no losing. (laughs) It just seemed like such an amazing opportunity where I get to read people's awesome books, have amazing conversations, test and iterate on content. And you know what you get after you talk to 200 people is you get a lot of product ideas. Like you start to hear what people want and where the holes in the market are. So this is what I mean by chess moves is I am doing a research project and a network building and a tribe building and a content engine first, because it's going to be a lot easier to pitch myself to go back on stage and do more public speaking and to do big writing projects. Because when I email the Atlantic and I say, hey, I've just interviewed 200 women and I can synthesize some of this for an article they're going to be much more inclined. They're going to say, that's cool. That's a research project you do versus who are you and what have you been doing? Yes. Just even saying the Atlantic like gives me chills. So Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that's how you thought it through. And I think this is like the perfect time too. 
because I love, like we were talking about how many hours you have in a week, but then I also remember you walked me through the next phase, which was really important for me in terms of planning maternity leave, but even outside of that, which is like, okay, so we have this assumption that there are 40 hours in a week or however many you have to work, but how many weeks are there even in a year to begin with? I love that that was something you thought through. Will you walk me through that process and kind of how you arrived at your number? Yes, yes. So step one in, this is how Carrie and I work. We have all these like wandering philosophical conversations about the big picture and then we get back to the nitty gritty and it's my favorite thing ever. But if you're following along, the first question is how many hours do you have in your best week? And so for me, that was 26. I have 45 hours of childcare, 26 hours of available actual work time. But then I was like, okay, how many weeks do I actually work in a year? Before I jump into this, if you're listening, I want you to guess how many weeks you work in a year. Just take a wild guess. When I first thought this, I was like, oh, we have 52 weeks of 50. We get two weeks of vacation, maybe 48 because I take two extra weeks off. <laughs> right? And then... Yeah. That's why I was like 49, <laughs> yeah, 50 40 for sure. Right. Yeah. But okay. So then really start to look at your calendar. I actually just looked at my Google calendar and flipped through month over month to see what a year's worth of data looks like. If you have any sort of calendar tracking, you can also do this with a blank calendar. Just look through and be like, oh, there's Thanksgiving. Oh, there's Labor Day. Oh, kids, there's that, you know, niggly week at the end of June where they're out of school. Whatever it is for you listening as a parent. But for me, I said, subtract two weeks of travel holidays. So for me, that was, we take a week off for Christmas and a week off for Thanksgiving, because those are the weeks we travel to see our family. Take off the weeks where there's like, schools have ski weeks or winter vacation or spring break. Just because you take a week off of your business, your kids might have a two-week or three-week winter holiday. For us, my partner works an 11-month work year. So we try to take a four-week sabbatical every year. Now, one of those was for his parental leave, the first baby, and another one's going to be for parental leave, the second baby. But what he ended up asking for as part of his contract was parental leave in perpetuity to have a month off every year to spend with his kids. Like I dig the newborn period, but it's such a blur. I would actually like to know my two-year-old and my three-year-old and my four-year-old. This is a design in progress, but we try to take four weeks off every year as a family. We're gunning for it to be either August or October. This year, it's going to be October because we're welcoming baby number two in that year. So he's going to be home for a month. Think about standard federal holidays. There are nine of them to 12 of them, depending on where you work and which holidays you celebrate. Think about other religious holidays that might affect your business. Sick leave. Most businesses have 10 days a week of sick leave. Also, sick leave for your kids. Who takes care of your kids when your kids are home? So adding all those things up together, knowing that 10 days is actually two weeks if you work a Monday to Friday job. If you work a different kind of week, you'll consider this in the first question. How many hours do you have? You say, oh, I have 15 hours a week. Still count up the days and we'll get to the how you do the math later. For me, once I counted up all those weeks I was taking off and a four-week sabbatical it sounds kind of luxurious in the United States, but it's actually pretty normal in other places in the world. I had 40 weeks a year to work, not 52, 40. It was 12 weeks I wasn't working, which blew my mind because it doesn't feel like that. It feels like I work all the time. So <laughs> it was kind of a, like come to mama kind of reconciliation, like what <laughs> is happening here? Yeah. It's so funny because after you told me this, I went back and looked at my year and marked like days where I was gone or had someone visiting or something like that, like an overarching non-work thing that was happening. And I marked them in a different color. 
And I was totally floored because again, I would have said to you, like, I work all the time, you know, part of my old company was like, we worked weekends. Like I felt like I was one of those diehard workers, but then you see you have all of this other stuff that's happening in your life, especially if you're pregnant and going to doctor's appointments and, you know, planning to have a little bit of wiggle room before baby's supposed to come or people are visiting. Like there's just so much more in there than we assume right off the bat. It's so true. And the really interesting thing is if anyone listening has read Bridget Schulte's book, Overwhelmed, she actually talks about how this is a really recent phenomenon. And we've only started to become so work obsessed and busy obsessed. Like we brag to each other in our Christmas holiday letters. It's so busy. Life is so busy. Life is so busy. That's like the mantra and the ethos of the last 50 years of the modern world. It's not always been this way. Actually, if you look back in work history 100, 200, 300 years ago, many places that had work systems, almost half of the days of the year, they had off 50%. And I think that we're actually still trying to do that, but we do it under this huge layer of guilt that we're not working at all times at all costs. And to me, it's just untenable. If you plan that you have three days a week to work instead of five, and you have 40 weeks a year to work instead of 52, you can make more reasonable assumptions and expectations about what you're going to get done instead of living in this perpetual catch-22 of feeling like you've never caught up to something that doesn't work anyways. So good. Because I also think too, when you've got the realistic total in mind, for me, it's less like depressing. I only have this many weeks. It's more with the World Cup has been going on. And my husband now like wakes up and is such like a fire under his fanny to get all of his most important stuff done so he can watch (laughs) World Cup games. Totally. And you know, it's like that micro version and it works really well for him. And so it means that these hours within the weeks that you have, you can really like appreciate and enjoy versus just plugging in the time at your desk in front of your computer when you're just looking at silly websites, which is what I used to do when I thought I had 50 weeks a year and 40 hours a week. Okay. Well, so you had mentioned that there was a third part of the system and what is that? Yeah. So the crazy thing about this is when you take number one and you multiply it by number two, I have 26 hours a week. I have 40 hours or 40 weeks. I keep saying 40 hours because it's habit, but you have 40 (laughs) weeks a year. I was like, I wonder how many hours I have in a year. And quick math is it's about a thousand. And I don't know if you've ever used the rule of thumb that you have 2,000 working hours in a year. Well, that's based on a 40-hour work week and 50 weeks a year. And I was blown away. I was like, I have half as many hours as I kept assuming that I had. And it was both depressing but also liberating. Because again, when you reduce time and you say, oh, you only have half as much time as you think you do, it makes you evaluate that time differently. I say, oh, wait, it's more precious. These hours matter more. Which brings me to question number three, which is, how long do things in your business take you? So I got out a big piece of paper and I started scratching out just like making a column for each thing that I did. The mastermind, the writing articles that I did, the podcast, all the different business development, working on my book manuscript, speaking engagements, marketing hours, social media hours, times that I spent emailing my team, relationship building because, you know, having coffee chats with people and having conversations, all of these are demands on my time. And so I just made a header for every single thing that I could do. And I thought about any given week where I said, okay, the podcast takes me two hours to set up and prep and do for the interview and then an hour of editing time. And I probably spend about three hours 
like reading the book quickly, like skimming and reading the book and then reading articles on the person. Call it like eight hours a week for each podcast episode. Okay. I got a number, a weekly number for each thing that I did. Just a ballpark number. Like how many hours do you think you spend emailing your team? Is it two? Is it four? Is it 10? Right? 10 is a problem, but okay. Get your best guess for each thing and then add it up, which is also enlightening because <laughs> I added it up and I was like, oh, here's the source of my stress. <laughs> I keep trying to do 66 hours of work every week and I keep having 26 hours. I have a 40-week gap. This is why my life feels like it sucks. <laughs> like, it's just so illuminating because I realized I kept trying to write for eight hours and do a podcast for eight hours and then biz dev, but then I would take a day to go like rush downtown and do a speaking gig and I would meet three people for coffee. And then, oh, I had to squeeze the marketing in. And then somebody would ask me to be a guest on a podcast. And I was trying to like build better systems. But then there's also like the business maintenance that has to happen. And then I was pitching sponsors. And it just felt like such a squeeze. And just laying it out and looking at it, this is where the chess moves analogy from before became so critical. Mm -hmm. Because I looked at it and I said, well, I really, I can't do 66 hours in 26 hours. Which is first? Which thing would I do if I could only pick one? Just asking that question, like the podcast, if it could like light up and glow and be backlit from the page in my journal diary and just kind of be like, ah, you know, and like jump out, <laughs> it was like, just do the podcast. And then back to where we started this whole conversation, Carrie, when I did that whole plan, I was doing this based on my best week ever. My full energy, full strength self has 26 hours a week. Then I was thinking about getting pregnant. Mm. And I said, well, I know from past experience that that first trimester is the worst bionic fatigue you can ever experience. And you probably at best have 50% of your normal energy at best. So, okay, that's 13 hours a week. If I'm doing half my normal, if I have 13 hours a week and I could only get one thing done and I had to live that way for the next three months, out of all the things on my plate, what would I cut and what would I keep? And I said, you know, for three months, if I could just show up and do one podcast episode every week, I think I could still make this business work. God, I love that. It's so funny. And I guess this is the thing. It's almost like every principle you learn in social science where it seems so obvious when someone has told you about it. <laughs> you know, like this is simple math. This is addition, subtraction, multiplication, but it takes pulling back to ask yourself those big questions. Like, which is first? What if I could only do one thing? And I guess that's the hardest part and the most beautiful part about parenthood and working parenthood is that you're forced to pause and question all of these assumptions that you've made, you know, it becomes urgent and necessary, because it's a forcing function. And, you know, there's that phrase always like, if you want something done, ask a busy person. And if you want to know if something even needs to be done to begin with, ask a pregnant person or a working mom. <laughs> yes. And I think you're the one who said that to me, I should, I will not take credit for that. Someone said it to me, and it must have been you. But anyways, like, that is what this is at its core. And again, this is why the uterus is like, right? This is our superpower. It is hard and it demands a lot of you physically, but look at what you just did to get down to the core and the essence of what is most important. And like, would you have done that if you weren't planning for baby number two? Well, Maybe you would have because no, you're so smart, but because, I wouldn't No, have. it's like, let's get super real here. I have known for the better part of the last decade, at least, that I should track my hours. 
right? Like this is common lore. Like you should track your hours. You should know where your time goes. What's the highest and best use of your time? The Pareto principle. I probably wrote an article for Inc. Magazine about it. Like I knew it in theory, but did I do it? And it wasn't until I was vomiting on New Year's and I was looking <laughs> at getting pregnant and I was trying to build this business that it really became critical to figure out. And it didn't take me that long to do. If you feel like you're too busy, I would just delete all your meetings anyways, call an audible and take a day or half a day and journal out the answers to these questions. How many hours do I actually have? That's question number one in a week. How many weeks do I actually have in a year? Not some mythological ideal, but actually like how many weeks are your kids out of school? And number three is roughly how much time do each of the things in your business take you? It is mind-blowing. And then from there, once you have your baseline of knowing what your operating system is as a human being, as a business, both weekly and yearly, you can start to layer on, okay, I want to take a three-month sabbatical this year so I can work on my book. How do I do that if I have 25% fewer hours than my thousand hours? Or half of the year is going to be dedicated to traveling or, you know, I want to take my kids and homeschool them. So I want to design a new life for myself, start applying these filters. I think it actually yields some of the most interesting, like creative constraints on business. Because I was talking to a friend about this, actually, before we got on this podcast. And I said, look, you can design a business that makes you a couple hundred grand working 40 hours a week, or you can design a business that makes you a couple hundred grand working four hours a week. Which one's the more interesting question? I would love to do the second one. You know, raise your hand <laughs> if you would like to work four hours. So I think these constraints can be really beautiful if we're willing to ask them with an open mind towards looking at creating interesting solutions. Yes. And I think that's one of those big things, right? Like an attachment from how things were and being really willing to look at it. And I do know too, as you were sharing this with me, like specifically in terms of taking notes, what was really helpful for me was this idea of the don't do list. And maybe that's the minimalist in me, but having that like explicit understanding of what I am not going to do, like what I know for sure is not on this list. That was so powerful for me. Yeah. So from here where you can say, okay, if these are the things I'm going to focus on, what does it mean that I don't do? What do I stay away from? And that can be really important to figure out. And I actually ended up writing a whole list and I'll link to the blog post where I have a picture of it. I am eating my words a little bit because I did end up doing one of them this year. So (laughs) tricky, tricky. (laughs) What's not on the list is speaking. I'm focusing on podcast. So when people invite me to do public speaking, if it can be done with an audio microphone from my bedroom in my pajamas, I can do it. If not, I'm not doing it. Oh, I'm doing one thing, actually. I just realized I am doing one event. Tricky, tricky. It's not in there. I'm not going to conferences. I made a decision not to go because the opportunity cost isn't getting it all done. It's the podcast wouldn't happen. I would have to take a month off from the podcast to be able to afford to go to a conference. And I think there's actually the opportunity cost. The risk is that people say, oh, this podcast isn't consistent. And I no longer know whether or not I can get episodes. And I'll check it out later. So I had to prioritize trying to make this podcast happen every week. I mean, thank you for sharing this system. I think that the clarity of this sort of simplicity of the questions is really empowering. And then also, again, just I love the language that you use, you know, creativity and constraints and design. It changes it from feeling like 
why am I failing? Why am I not doing enough? Why is everything so unreasonable? Or why are working moms not needing the bar versus like, what could this totally different version look like? And if you are in the place as like you, Sarah, and I myself am in where we have this just immense privilege to be able to determine for ourselves what our work life looks like, then man, do it thoughtfully, like do it in a way that really serves you and serves the people that you are trying to serve, which you are doing so beautifully here. It's always a work in progress. I stumbled onto this system because I I needed it. And I love thinking about this stuff. I think there's just such an interesting challenge inside of motherhood to figure out how it can actually make more interesting businesses in our business design and our efforts and our energies. And like you said, I do realize this is also like a privileged place to be operating from. There are systemic obstructions for the majority of women and working parents in this culture. And that's one of the long-term goals of pioneering this change, like big dreams over here, big things I want to, <laughs> I want to work on baby steps, you know, one, one layer at a time, one yeah. little podcast at a time. Well, Sarah, thank you for letting me be a part of this conversation. Thanks for sharing your brilliance. And thank you so much for sharing this tool. You know, personally, for me, it's something that I wish I'd given a little more thought to before I had my baby, but man, has it been helpful for me in these months coming back to work. So it's not just like the time of being pregnant, but transitioning back into work as a new mom, it's been so helpful. So Thanks for sharing. And I know you're going to link to the blog that has even more details and kind of lays it out clearly in case my jumping around (laughs) confused anyone. But thank you for this conversation. Oh, Carrie, thanks for doing the interview. Let's do it again. Yeah? Yes, definitely. Definitely. All right. Thanks, Carrie. Bye. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.